I'm not trying to tell people what to think in my work, but what I am doing is I'm, I'm working to create experiences where people are forced to question their pre-existing beliefs and say to myself, why did I think that? And really reflect and deconstruct how certain ideas get into our heads. And I think there's a way you can do that with art and media that is engaging, entertaining, um, intentional and intellectually rigorous that can, that can provide certain insights and revelations that um, don't necessarily happen through just talking or just, you know, reading essays or newspaper articles or reading books. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie, and that was Columbia Law School artist-in-residence Bayate Ross-Smith, an interdisciplinary artist who uses art and technology to advance social justice through his range of projects, from Red Summers, an immersive virtual reality series that deals with domestic terrorism in America from 1917 to 1921, to Our Kind of People, which encourages viewers to question their pre-existing beliefs. Bayate Ross Smith, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. I appreciate the invitation. Would you start by describing the genesis of your Art of Justice program? Certainly. So um, Art of Justice started, um, interestingly enough, years ago, I was up in Connecticut doing a project for um, these series of site-specific sculptures that I do that are made out of boom boxes. They're made out of vintage boom boxes. It's a series called uh, Got the Power. And um, I was up there doing some work uh, to set up the sculptures because they're site-specific sculptures. So you have to do a a significant amount of on-site research. Um, And then these sculptures actually play they're made out of boom boxes and they actually play a soundtrack that is comprised of local people's favorite songs and audio recordings of their memories um, of that area. Now, Art of Justice doesn't necessarily directly have to do with Got the Power boom boxes, but that's why I was in Connecticut. I was working with um, someone I know at the Amistad Center. And so I was doing a lot of community engagement type of activities and I did an artist talk um, to um, to engage with the community up there also to promote the work. And one of the other people speaking that day was a guy who was a former lawyer. Well, I mean, I guess he's still a lawyer, but he was primarily teaching at this point at UConn. Um, and he saw my presentation and we sat down, had a meal, some of the other guests there and we we're talking. And he said to me, you know, have you ever thought of doing something um, at law schools? And I said, well, you know, I've been thinking about how I can utilize my work and work that operates in a similar vein um, from other artists I know to engage with uh, policymaking communities and and the criminal justice system. Um, But I hadn't thought of doing um, something on site in terms of an installation. I had kind of just thought more about programming or trying to get groups of people from those communities to participate in um, different programs that we do. Um, 
And so he was like, yeah, well, you know, law schools, they have a lot of space that's not really utilized and your work could really be compelling in that setting. He's like, because, you know, a lot of times law schools need ways to activate the concepts in their work. I'm sorry. Law schools need ways to activate the concept in their lessons that can connect to a daily lived experience. And he was like, I think your work would operate well in those settings. So I talked with him for a bit. We've since then lost touch, but he was trying to connect me with some people at UConn. And then I started thinking more about it. And I I decided I wanted to target top tier law schools because I felt like they would be some of the law schools that other law schools would copy. Um, And then I started thinking about uh, the background of my work. And I've always had a strong community engagement element in my work. Um, you know, for the past 18, 19 years, you know, I was doing work that would be described as social practice well before that term even existed. Um, And so from that standpoint, I said, well, you know, what would probably be best is to create an entire program with installations that could be up for, you know, an entire school year, um, maybe multiple school years, and there could be different programs and activities, you know, not just panels, but things that really engage people um, intellectually, but also socially in kind of discussing um, some of the most pressing social challenges that we're facing and how lawyers and people with legal education can resolve them. So I then figured, okay, law schools are a great environment because that's geared towards education. And then also I I wanted to focus on district attorney's offices, um, you know, because given my background, um, you know, criminal justice reform is something that, you know, it's been on my mind since I was like 12 years old. Um, And uh, I first started having to realize that, um, I existed in a body that could be perceived as criminal, even though I was a kid. Was there an incident that brought that home to you that you would care to share? That, that's hard to think of. I don't want to seem um, melodramatic or cliche, but um, it's just part of being um, an African-American in the United States of America, <laughs> as opposed to an African-American in another part of the world where quite often because you're American combined with the fact that you're a black American, you not always, but quite often get treated with more respect outside of your home country than within it. Um, it start, that's starting to change a little bit, but that was how things were for a long period of time, at least based on my experience. I'm, I'm curious what other folks who travel a bit would say. Um, but I say all that to say that there's so many incidents that happen Um, as a black kid growing up, once you start to get beyond that age of simply being cute and start being perceived more as an adult, um, and you start being perceived as more of a threat. Um, so I couldn't isolate just one. It's just an accumulation of things that started happening around the age of 12, um, that my family had been preparing me for, but when it happened, it was like, oh, wow, I see it. Like, now I remember things my mom told me when I was seven, and now I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is this is this is why she was telling me this. This is why my aunt told me X, Y, and Z when I was nine. Um, so it's it's you can't, it's not often a specific instance. It's just accumulation of, of different things, and you realize like, oh, okay, this is how it is in um, our society. And you figure out the most productive way to adapt and navigate it. And hopefully you can do that. And uh, I, I think most people 
try to do that um, in a way where you don't allow bigotry and bias to make you biased or a bigot. But, you know, it's just, it's stuff like, um, you know, the, 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 you know, police bothering you and stopping you. Um, you know, this is in the eighties and nineties, even before stopping for risk and, you know, being um, disciplined more harshly in school and, you know, all the cliche things that are actually real though, um, that people talk about. Um, but, you know, a lot of people go through that um, in a variety of uh, scenarios. Um, it happens based on ethnicity. It happens based on race. It happens based on sex and or gender. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's life and it's unfortunate, but I'm not someone who's like extremely damaged because of it. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's how I would describe that. When did you see the opportunity to use art to deal with those issues? You know, that's a really great question. I was, I just was reflecting on this the other day. Um, I went to Florida A&M University, uh, FAMU, which is a historically black college in Florida. And um, when I first went into college, I was in business school and we used to do this thing in business school at Florida A&M where we would um, have this event once every week called Forum. And we dress up in these suits and we go meet in the huge auditorium we had on campus. And we would then have a presentation from a Fortune 500, uh, we'd have a presentation from a, a CEO or an executive, high up executive at a Fortune 500 company. And um, we'd ask them questions and they visit the, the campus for the day. They meet a bunch of different students and participate in other activities other than that. And it was one of their um, FAMU's primary, uh, um, not recruitment tools, one of FAMU's business school's um, primary tools for placement and creating what was and still is a very robust pipeline for talented, intelligent, young African-Americans to go through a pipeline to corporate America. Anyway, um, I was with some of my friends um, before forum uh, one day and we started getting ready. And at one moment, you know, we were dressed and talking and conducting ourselves in, ter in terms of body language in a way that was very much, you know, typical of young African-Americans um, who were, you know, like 20 years old at the time. And then I noticed that all of a sudden, you know, we put on these suits and we changed our posture and body language and we changed the way we talked and we were prepared to go into this place and, and talk to these executives. So we did, you know, um, a complete shift in how we represented ourselves and presented ourselves and ideas and a complete shift in terms of what the focus of what we were thinking about in terms of subject matter was. And this is before the term code switching was really, really popular, but that really struck me that we went through that transformation and that we could be both things. And um, this is before I was really studying photography and thought I'd be um, a photo 
and arts professional, but I remember thinking to myself, there should be some sort of story or documentary or series of photographs or news story or, or a song or something about this that showcases this, because I think this is an, an amazing switch and shift. And then I started thinking, you know, if this is true of, of young Black people, there's probably a similar equivalent in other populations, too. And it could be something that's really, really eye-opening for people to see. How long was it from that seed planting to it being manifested? A couple of years, actually. It happened relatively quickly. Um, you know, maybe a year later, I realized I didn't want to go into a corporate business and, um, I changed my major to photography and at FAMU that was through the school of journalism. So I started working in photography and photojournalism at that point. And, um, I got a few different jobs working at, um, daily newspapers in, you know, larger cities. And from there I, I was working as a photojournalist. But these primary themes of, you know, exploring the different ways in which identity um, impacts daily human interactions, both on an interpersonal level and a macro level, was was something that I was very much interested in, even in my early work as a photojournalist. I just didn't have, you know, the control of my subject matter and of my time as a creative person back then. So that was the start. And then... You know, after a few years of working as a photojournalist, I realized due to what my mentors were advising me about that um, I might need to think of an alternative path. You know, I'm, I might need to think of an alternative path to creating a career for myself um, because everyone was telling me, you know, um, people aren't just working for a couple of newspapers for 30, 40 years, then retiring. You know, they're like the industry is changing. You're going to have to figure out different ways to make a career for yourself. And so that's when I started thinking about very seriously incorporating different forms of media into my work and looking at my approach to working as um, thinking about the concept and mood and emotions and specific stories I wanted to tell and then determine the proper medium or mediums, plural, in combination with one another to use to do that as opposed to thinking of myself as solely a photographer. So then I went to graduate school and studied fine art to have another set of tools in my toolkit. And then I, I started working um, in the world. Our Kind of People project is what you described as having more impact than the others. And it kind of nails what you were talking about with that first idea of seeing people transformed by fashion. Uh, so how does that project play out in what you're currently doing now with Columbia's Artist in Residency program? Yeah, you know, that project is directly linked to um, my experience in business school at, at FAMU. And originally, I thought um, our kind of people was going to be a photo documentary of young African-Americans um, navigating careers in corporate America, you know, people who were 25, 26 and under. Um, because when I first started doing the Our Kind of People series itself, a lot of my friends had gotten their MBAs because we were in business school and college together and they were embarking on these careers in corporate America. But what I realized is it wasn't something that necessarily um, needed to exist in the real world because the concepts, moods, and emotions I was addressing, the, the issues and ideas of bias and preconceived notions, um, they didn't need to be visually represented in 
the actual real world. What it really was about was someone's face and how we respond to different people's faces in terms of what we project onto a face in combination with what that person is wearing. Um, So that's why I chose to photograph real people instead of models, but real people in clothing that they all own that's worn in a style in which they would wear them um, and photograph them with the same lighting, same facial expression on a white background. The white background being a background that you know, it's closely aligned with identity portraiture and images that officially state who you are. So fast forward to the work I'm doing with Columbia Law School now as the inaugural artist in residence. And I'm doing a lot of work to push the the concepts that I think are important to think about um, that I highlight in my in the artwork that I made in my career and figuring out how they apply to legal education and the careers that people with legal education will go into. So we're currently planning a couple of pop-up exhibitions that'll happen possibly by the end of this semester or we'll start the beginning of next semester. And then we're also planning some larger scale installations that will be um, more refined um, and can be installed for extended periods of time um, beyond this school year. And a lot of this work will deal with identity as a mode of self-expression and a performance, as well as looking at what reasonable assumptions and projections can be related to identity versus those that are unreasonable. It'll be a combination of still images, um, some video work, maybe some you know, installation work in terms of slightly altering spaces. We can't alter spaces too much in a law school environment, um, but it'll be a combination of, of some of those different things. Um, photos, video, multimedia, a little bit of mixed media, 2D work. Um, and it'll be looking at themes. Um, the current thing we're working on is working on something that examines themes of violence. It'll utilize some images from my Taking Aim series and um, possibly uh, one or two pieces from my Red Summer series, um, which is a immersive film series shot in 360 VR. Um, then we're looking at, you know, who's considered a threat, who's considered a victim um, based on our associations of identity and um, how that impacts the likelihood of being involved in interpersonal violence or maybe even state-sponsored uh, violence. And some points of reflection in terms of recent um events that relate directly to the legal community are, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, um, the verdict in the Maude Aubrey case. And then there's um, how the, the case related to the mass shooting in Michigan unfolds with the parents being held accountable legally in ways that they're not often held accountable. Um, in addition to how the, the individual responsible for those, those shootings for that shooting, excuse me, um, is treated and contextualized in pop culture and popular media. How is the engagement with faculty and student body with the project? Um, So far, it's been pretty good. We have not done anything. We haven't done any formal presentations or installations of anything yet. We've done a lot of meetings and discussions and kind of um, mapping things out and um, workshopping ideas. Uh, 
I've participated in a few different meetings and I've, I've participated in a few different meetings with some of their working groups. Um, these are, are kind of like committees, so to speak, that um, have faculty um, and alumni who are interested in a specific topic and how lawyers and people with legal education can help society address it. Um, so, you know, one of the working groups is the naming and symbols working group, and that's examining how, uh, um, how we develop the names of, uh, of different things and the symbols we use to exalt certain ideas in both Columbia's spaces um, and in public space. Um, so you may be familiar with the report from, um, what is their name? It's the organization out of Philly. Um, I'm blanking on their name right now. Um, they did an audit, audit of um, the, all the monuments in the U.S. Well, not probably not every single monument, but the vast majority of the well-known monuments in the U.S. and kind of analyzed who they're of and what they commemorate. Um, and so the Naming and Symbols Working Group investigates things like that and investigates how they name different scholarships at Columbia um, and looks at what symbols are present in public space, whether it's portraits of people connected to Columbia or people who donated money, how and why, things of that nature. And so I've been involved in a lot of conversations about how art and media um, can be utilized to engage in different ideas that are important um, and how I might facilitate the implementation of certain things in the law school space that could be installations of my work and then a series of events and programs that accompany it. But it's also examining how my expertise as an artist can bring another voice and perspective into a lot of these conversations that can be enlightening because they're often happening in, in um, circumstances where the people don't have, the people involved don't have access to that. They have access to legal, legal minds and perhaps, you know, um, you know, political science minds, for example, um, and they may have a lot of practical experience in the field, but there's always going to be um, different ways that people from different, um, the way there's always going to be different ways that people from different areas of expertise and different disciplines bring to a situation. There's always going to be a different lens. Um, and as an artist, I bring a very creative lens to seeing any type of situation. And the way artists can be immensely valuable um, to the rest of society is the fact that we probably more, uh, probably more often than people in other fields, although artists can be very narrow-minded too, but artists often, um, and this includes filmmakers, this includes um, photojournalists, visual journalists, um, and people who write, but artists often think of things with a broader spectrum of possibility in mind and a broader idea of what's possible because we have to do that in order to create our work. And so when you bring an artist perspective into a lot of these situations, um, it often becomes an additional asset that's harder to get than if you were to bring people from any other field into these situations, just because of how artists are conditioned to think. But you also have to have artists who are more capable of thinking about their perspective and their expertise and their work as a public service, as opposed to artists who are self, who are very 
self-centered and self-indulgent. And sometimes you need artists to be self-centered and self-indulgent to create certain types of things, but to create other work that, in my opinion, has a wider range of social impact and can be more significant and important and dynamic for a longer period of time, perhaps indefinitely, I think that's where you need artists who are really thinking about their work and the way they think and what they do as a public service so that they are thinking of the validity of other perspectives even perspectives they may disagree with, but what's the validity within that perspective, even if the conclusion is ultimately flawed. Um, you need artists who think that way in these types of situations uh, to help cultivate um, a really open-minded, intellectually rigorous, thoughtful um, scenario of, of reflection. Have there been any artists who are within the Columbia uh student body or alumni who've come forward? I haven't uh, really begun working with any artists from uh, the Columbia student body or um, any of their arts programs yet. Oh, no, I mean, within law school, law school students or alumni, lawyers who are artists, because that would be kind of an interesting aspect to see uh, what they might bring to the table as well. Yeah, so that's interesting in that... um, no one who, no one who I would say formally identifies as an artist um, has approached me or engaged with me so far. But there are a lot of people who have ideas for um, addressing certain topics in creative ways who I've been in conversation with and who have talked about that. Like one of the faculty members organizes a series of podcasts where they engage in different types of discussions and the implementation of the podcast and um, the presentation of the podcast can happen in a variety of different ways that are fairly creative. Um, and they incorporate a multitude of audio-based disciplines into the podcast. So the creation and facilitation of music, um, creating the podcast with a community of people, um, which can include students and faculty, um, that aren't typically making podcasts in a way that combines multiple medium aside from just talking. Some of those types of things, uh, I've been um, encountering people who are interested in doing that. Um, I had a meeting with a faculty member who works closely with a theater company for um, creating certain works that address certain issues. Um, I don't think she would call herself an artist per se, but I think she is an artist to another degree. Um, and so um, it's, it's a lot of people like that who have creative ideas and may not call themselves artists, but are working in an artistic capacity. I often liken it to the fact that like, I'm not a basketball player, like professionally, but I do play basketball, you know? So it's like art is definitely the same way. Like you don't have to be an artist to be making art at a certain point in time. And hopefully uh, more and more people will start considering um, the fact that their artistic ability can be useful in a variety of different circumstances, even if they're not like say a professional artist. Um, Cause we don't, you know, professional artists are important but art can exist outside of professional artists. And would you say that the work that you do, uh, the idea of art as a process and what you're saying, going a little further with the idea that art is more than the typical definition 
that's that it's been labeled with would you say that your work is is kind of bringing that to communities in a broader way to show them that art can be part of facilitating community yes i would say that um i think part of it though is that when i think of art i think of a variety of different creative disciplines i'm not only thinking of fine art um and quite often People, um, you know, think of art as fine art and they don't think necessarily of filmmakers as artists or people who are working on, you know, episodic conceptual TV shows as artists or, you know, writers and journalists as well, writers as artists, there's very good reasons why people don't think of journalists as writers. I mean, there's a very good reasons why people don't think of journalists as artists. Um, as you could maybe argue that journalists are more artisans than artists. But um, this idea that a lot of different disciplines are artistic, not just something for a museum or a gallery, um, I think is something that can help cultivate. Uh, because I think it's very true and it's very important that people think about it um, that way. Um, because again, you can do something artistic or contribute a, a small part of something artistic to a larger project or implement an artistic process without having to be a professional artist. And I think that's very valuable because I think art and media are really important tools for getting us to reflect on important ideas and getting us to reflect on all the different ways um, one can exist and perceive the world. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, you can talk about in conversation and we can write about, you know, in short or long firm, in, in, in short or long form, but art and media are very good tools for taking an idea and making it feel resonant to any given person's daily lived experience. The audience that you started your work targeted towards till now, how has that changed? It's a greater sense of awareness, I would say. Um, I think I've expanded my audience to a certain extent, but not. This is why it's a, that's a complicated question. Because when I started off in photojournalism, my audience was essentially anyone in the world who could benefit from journalism and news. Um, then I started studying art and working in more specifically artist spaces. Um, and my audience narrowed for a little bit, but the goal was to figure out how that audience could expand. And then through working for several years, I realized that that audience could expand. And um, it really wasn't that complicated to expand the audience if I was um, intentional and strategic. So I would say that, you know, um, you know, multi-platform storytelling is a, a critical element of my work and multi-platform storytelling is figuring out how the core content of your creative artistic work can be applied effectively across different platforms for presentation. 
So I think about how my work can exist on the walls and in the spaces of museums and other gallery spaces. But I also think about how it can exist in public spaces, how it can exist in people's homes, how it can exist online, how it can exist on desktop, as well as how it can exist on mobile. Um, Can it function in a traditional film capacity? Can it function as a in-person performance? Can it function as documentation of a performance? And so in doing all of that, I'm thinking about how my work can engage with different audiences because certain types of people will primarily engage through different platforms. And quite often it takes a small amount, though a thoughtful and intentional amount of tweaking and adjusting of the core artistic content to make it um, be able to be presented in an effective and compelling way on a different platform. Um, So in that regard, I'm always looking to expand my audience. Um, But, you know, it's expanded in a way that I always wanted to have happen in terms of reach. It was really more about being able to put a name and an intention and a strategy next to how I expand to each specific audience. And that is still an ongoing process. You know, I've, I've had a lot of success engaging international audiences, but that still is something that I could be open to doing more. And um, I am open to doing that more. And that's something I want to facilitate further. But, um, you know, you have to be intentional about it. So I would say, you know, specific audiences that I've very strategically expanded to and have, and I'm happy I've been able to expand to include them in the past five years or so have been, um, you know, the legal community, given the work I'm doing now, um, which, you know, have been in the works for a while. I also did some work with um, the St. Thomas University Law School's um, Intercultural Human Rights Program, where I I led some virtual um, workshops and classes with them. And that was really interesting because that's a very international group of students that study at St. Thomas University, which is based um, in Miami. But um, the students all go back to their different regions of the world and and enact what they've learned. Um, So that's, you know, national. I mean, that's domestic in terms of being in the United States, but with a a very direct international um, mode of having impact. and then I've also made some significant inroads into the policymaking community, um, doing work with, um, you know, with U.S. government entities that um, I would like to expand. It's really only been in its infancy stages in terms of um, being involved in discussions and doing presentations, but I want to engage in more um, working with people who, you know, work in government and in policy in more ways. And I have some inroads into, into doing that with some friends and colleagues of mine that work in government and are seeking to have um, creative interventions in government to bring home certain concepts that they think are critically important for people who work there to engage in. I've been looking into um, potentially, you know, doing some work with the state department and the department of justice the Department of Education, um, that could happen in a variety of different capacities. It might, like it could happen directly through these 
organizations with, you know, actual people who are working, um, developing policy and implementing policy, or it could also work as part of an initiative that engages um, the people who work in these spaces and the broader public um, as part of some newer initiatives that they're developing. So it could be interior, it could be exterior, it could be interior and exterior. Um, so an example would be like, if I was to do some engagements with the State Department, it could be with State Department people, people who work within the State Department domestically, but they, it could also be you know, them sending me abroad to do something that's a program at one of their embassies or, or consulates, you know, in another continent, for example. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we're in the early stages of discussing. Um, and I've also done some more work with um, foundations that aren't foundations that relate to the arts. So like um, presidential foundations and their, their different programs by extension. Oh, and the medical community as well. And you've also done, I believe, uh, was it a, a project dealing with state prisons, state property? Was that the title of the project? Yeah. And so that was an exhibition in an art type of space, but it engaged with and incorporated a lot of artists, a lot of um, policymakers, a lot of community workers, both people who were activists and also people who don't necessarily do activism, but do advocacy or do, you know, work on the ground in different communities. And, um, you know, again, it was in an art space, but it really intentionally engaged with all these other communities who focus on that type of work um, and resolving the challenges that we face in regards to that type of work. Um, so that was interesting to kind of, be in a space that was kind of straddling all these different worlds. Um, but yeah, in that particular piece, um, we did a performance and then we also filmed the performance. And so the filming of the performance became a piece, but then the individual performance was a piece within the show as well. And that was basically um, a hip hop based performance about emceeing called Step Into the Cypher, um, where we create these scenarios where um, people who don't necessarily come from hip hop backgrounds are brought into a freestyle cypher where people make up rhymes off the top of their heads in the moment um, to different instrumentals or beatbox or something. Um, and so that's, you know, then a live performance that then also can be recorded. I recorded them, uh, filmed them using um, virtual reality um, equipment and technology so they can have another level and another layer of life there. Um, and so we published a piece I published a piece with the New York Times based on some of that work. Um, and the, basically the way it fit into the state property concept was that um, I facilitated this freestyle cipher. And, you know, the subject matter was this idea of state property and, um, you know, the 13th Amendment um, and um, which populations of people are more likely to be um, imprisoned. Um, and have substantial engagements with the criminal justice system and why that is and why it is not just a simple answer. Like it's never been a simple answer as, oh, if people don't break the law and follow the rules, they'll be fine. If there's, you know, 
a lot of us are aware now that there's a lot of different factors and systemic things that make certain people more vulnerable, if not um, systemic things that are directly predatory um, related to that subject matter. So, you know, the MCs freestyled about that. They had different topics related to that they freestyled about, and that became performance as part of the larger art exhibit. And then we created an art piece that was a video art piece using um, virtual reality um, of that particular cipher. That's part of a larger body of work I'm developing. And then we took an excerpt of that um, and published it in a New York Times piece back when they were doing um, the, the daily 360 thing where they would publish a 360 video about a certain newsworthy topic each day. So even that show is kind of an example of multi-platform storytelling in my work because there's the performance, there's the footage from the performance that becomes part of another larger piece and then there's the footage of that performance that becomes part of a specific piece with the New York Times talking about that show and encouraging people to attend the show while giving them a glimpse of the show, um, you know, in virtual reality. How would that kind of multi-level storytelling work for something like uh, CLE, which I had read that that might be something in the pipeline? That's a little hard to assess. Um, it would be very speculative um, at this point because um, while I technically know what CLE is, I don't know how it actually functions as an experience. So I would love, love, love to incorporate my work into CLE. Um, I don't know exactly what form that would take because I need to learn more about you know, the X's and O's of CLE. Um, but my thinking at this point is that um, the experiences of, of seeing and being around my work, particularly the virtual reality work, could be a means of delving into certain issues of the history of law, how legal policy is developed, and raising questions about how certain laws led to certain events occurring over and over and over again. Um, in the history of the United States and perhaps the history of the world, um, and then how other laws prevented certain things from happening and what really is at the heart of how law can influence human behavior, um, or I should say societal behavior. So for example, in my series, Red Summers, we look at these incidents of uh, white mob violence that happened um, during the World War I era, um, racialized white mob violence during the World War I era. Um, and we look at what caused that violence um, and what the social and political landscape was at that time. And then we look at how a lot of those social issues and political issues are almost identical to what we're facing today. So then we're able to look at what decisions we made as a, as a society back then um, and what decisions we can and are making now so that we don't make the same mistakes and see how that might apply to a legal um, landscape. In, in terms of 100 years ago and some of the stories from Red Summers, um, which is a, a virtual reality immersive film project, we see um, issues of bias in the press being a catalyst for um, certain violence, which almost directly aligns to this idea of fake news we're dealing with now um, and how we're going to. Um, direct and uh, regulate social media. Um, you see um, issues of 
um, law enforcement um, on the one hand, over-policing certain communities and putting them under surveillance, but on the other hand, under-protecting some of the same communities because they don't protect them when those communities are attacked by white mob violence or other outside forces um, that are part of the white power establishment. Um, we look at problems, th these stories look at problems in terms of the approach to prosecuting. Um, there's also an instance that examines a very specific law in the state of Illinois that was passed in the early 1900s that was designed to prevent lynchings, but then could be applied to race riots. Um, um, and we're recontextualizing race riots as incidents of domestic terrorism, um, because that's what they were uh, at their heart. And so all of these different things are things that legal minds can dig into um, and can be connected to certain laws and policies. But I, I'd have to partner directly with legal minds to figure out how to connect those to a very specific element of the law that lawyers would be studying or uh, revising or getting updated on. And that's something that I don't specifically know yet. But I hope to know more about that um, as I continue at Columbia. Are there other laws that have jumped out at you as you have been doing these projects that would perhaps be um, your choice to to focus on? Not necessarily laws, but the lack of laws. Um, and you just realize like a lot of rights and protections that people in general have, um, but particularly workers and laborers have, are very, very recent. Um, so you look at 100 years ago, and housing discrimination is, is flagrant. Um, and there's just no laws against that. And people just do whatever they want. And people actually conspire to um, place certain groups of people in certain inadequate housing, right? Or um, they'll charge people more money for goods and services, even something as simple and direct as groceries um, based on race and ethnicity. Um, and there's no laws against that. So people just do it. You know, it's like stuff like that where you're like, oh, right. You know, it took a series of movements uh, throughout the history of this country to have, you know, a lot of the laws that came out of uh, the LBJ administration and the Great Society to be passed. You know, what was that? Uh, you know, about 60, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, I guess, um, coming up on 60 years ago. And those laws are relatively recent. So that's been like pretty eye-opening. Um, you know, the fact that there were no laws and regulations about like how to address um, a race riot or, you know, about bias in the press. Like you see a lot of cases, a lot of circumstances, I should say, not actually cases, because I don't want to confuse that with like something that happened in law, but a lot of circumstances where you have the, the press flagrantly saying something that wasn't true and there was no you know, action taken uh, by the government legally because there weren't necessarily laws against that. Um, the Washington DC uh, 19 um, was directly uh, facilitated by um, inaccurate dare I say, false inflammatory stories by the Washington Post. Um, and they actually created a, they actually uh, published uh, 
an extensive story about that on the anniversary of, the, of that riot too. The Washington Post did about the role of the press and particularly the Post's role in um, being a catalyst for that riot, um, which is very destructive. But um, yeah, you see, you see those kinds of parallels. You see a headline that says Negro riot, and then you look at the, the history of it now in 2021, or you know, even in 2018 or 2017, when I first started doing the research. And I'm like, okay, so they put headlines that said Negro riot. And I know for a fact, looking back historically, that it was a riot of white mobs attacking black people and black property and the black people were defending themselves. But that was in the headlines. So there's so many different things like that, or even things that are subjective and inflammatory, like, you know, um, in the Tulsa race massacre, there's a, a very famous headline that's put out by one of the newspapers that says, nab Negro an attack on girl in elevator. And this person has already been arrested you know, the legal system is determining and the authorities are trying to determine what happened, but they're putting out this headline, NAB Negro, um, which one could pretty easily argue is basically a call for a lynching, right? So all those types of things, the fact that they weren't like flagrantly illegal <laughs> is like, whoa, uh, we had a long way to go to put just you know, we had a long way to go to put laws in place that to us now seem like common sense laws. And it's like just a hundred years ago, they were not in place. And, you know, a hundred years ago, isn't that long in human history. Like, you know, like my great aunt is celebrating her 93rd birthday um, this January. So, you know, that's basically two generations away. So three generations away the parents of, you know, my grandmother, and my great aunt were adults at this time. Um, so it's not like so removed from us. Are there historians that you've been looking to when you're gathering this kind of uh, information for your work? Yeah, I generally have to do research to find out who some historical experts are who can then guide my additional research and who may have research that... Um, they'll um, send to me that helps me determine these various stories. You know, there's some general research that I do through libraries and, and archives and, and online, but it's always very helpful to have the assistance of historic scholars who have done, you know, extensive research, written dissertations, so on and so forth, um, to really guide me towards the specific information and share the information with me. Um, all of their research is really critical to me being able to enact um, a project like Red Summers, uh, I mean, to produce a project like Red Summers in a productive way. Are there a few examples? Um, yeah, I can give some shout outs. You mean like people, specific scholars? Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, um, sure. They, I mean, I, I'm very appreciative of, of the generosity of a lot of these people in terms of, of working with me. And I shouldn't have to say this, but it might be important to say, you know, a lot of these scholars were white people, you know, white Americans who are very generous and very supportive in this work that I'm doing because they realized that, you know, understanding a true history is very, very important. And they, um, they didn't look at it as, um, being anti-patriotic. <laughs> they looked at it as their duty as historians and as a means of making a better country and a better world for all of us. Um, and, you know, I, it feels odd to have to say that, but I think we, in the current climate, it is something that we have to say that, um, that, that that's important to be, to be noted. But, um, you know, pe people who I've worked with have been, um, 
Andy Theising, um, who is um, a scholar and expert on East St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, I've worked with Cameron McWhorter, who wrote a really great and extensive book on the Red Summer of 1919. Um, one of the one of the one of the best kind of collections of work about the entire Red Summer of 1919. It's really eye opening. Um, you know, uh, David Bristow and the staff at History Nebraska. David Bristow and the staff at History Nebraska um, were very helpful, very um, very kind. Um, you know, um, uh, Treva uh, B. Lindsay, um, who's at Ohio State. There's a lot of these people have doctorates, by the way. I should have said doctor next to all their names. Dr. Kidada Williams. She's very, very generous. Um, who else? Um, Annalisa Bruner, who is the great uh, grand niece of uh, Mary E. Jones Parish, who wrote one of the seminal texts and documentations of the Tulsa uh, 1921 race massacre um, that was published actually in the 1920s. Dr. Kyle Miller at the Delta Heritage Center, Dr. Carlos Hill, um, who is at the University of Oklahoma, Hannibal uh, B. Johnson, who's wrote several books on the Tulsa race massacre. It's, it's a lot of people who are really, really helpful in push, pushing this forward. Um, Mary Elliott is another one who, uh, another scholar who gave me a really insightful interview and helped me out with information related to Chicago and uh, Washington, D.C. in 1919. Um, a, lot, a lot of folks, a lot of really good folks were, were, very, were very generous with their time and really thoughtful and helpful. Oh, you know who else I didn't shout out? I need to shout out uh, Randy Crable at the Tulsa World newspaper. He gave me a really great interview and really helped contextualize the role of the press, not only in the case of the Tulsa massacre, but throughout this entire era. When you started the VR documentaries, did you have a goal to correct the the record and, and therefore make it an act of historical justice? Or do you see it now that way as you're in the middle of it? That was part of the initial goal, um, you know, to make it a corrective narrative that also then connects us to the current time and helps explain why we are where we're at now and how we might navigate current times and navigate how we conduct ourselves in the future to create more productive outcomes for our society and even internationally. Um, because, you know, I, I mentioned this in my TED talk, I think the United States still is a global leader that can kind of model um, a multicultural, um, polyethnic and inclusive society. Um, so some of what we do here in the United States will have global impact just because of the impact this country has through, you know, international policy, um, military, um, pop culture, art and media, because the stuff we produce and create here goes all over the world um, and, 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 you know, our global reach. But um, I did want it to be corrective and connect to what we're dealing with now um, and what we will have to address in the future. So that was my intention. I wasn't necessarily thinking, and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm creating like the seminal um, art and media pieces that do that, but I was hoping to contribute to the larger um, 
kind of pantheon uh, or larger archive of of creative work that can help correct these stories and give us an idea of what we can do moving forward. What are some of the upcoming projects that you have? Yeah, I mean, I have um, a campaign that I'm re uh, restarting, rebooting on Instagram that will also be an online campaign based on the Our Kind of People series. So keep an eye out for that. And we'll be publishing the final um, episode of Red Summers. It's a five-part series. So we'll be publishing that um, next week um, sometime. So sometime, you know, between in, in December 14th and 18th, most likely. Um, we're publishing that series with The Guardian U.S., um yeah and um i'm looking forward to creating a wider variety of different installations at columbia law school and hopefully we'll be doing some more public programming what is the legacy that you want your body of work to leave that's a good question i really want it to be a resource so that a lot of these stories as well as a lot of these ideas when we think about how to navigate preconceived notions, biases, um, being more aware of how um, my, being more aware of how our personal sense of identity and how we perform that impacts the world and impacts how people respond to us. All these ideas, I want them to be something that can be a resource and a catalyst for getting people to reflect with more depth on how they perceive the world and how they approach engaging with the world. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.